trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and welcome back to Access to Excellence. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Laurie O. Robinson, the Clarence J. Robinson Professor of Criminology, Law, and Society here at Mason, and a two-time former U.S. Assistant Attorney General, having served in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. Laurie has been involved in national criminal justice policy for more than three decades. In 2014, she was selected by President Obama to co-chair the White House Task Force on 21st Century Policing in charge of developing recommendations on ways to build greater trust between law enforcement and citizens in the wake of the civil unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, following the death of Michael Brown at the hands of police in 2014. Lori is also the chairman of the Board of Directors of the Council on Criminal Justice, a national bipartisan think tank created to advance understanding of the criminal justice policy challenges facing the nation while devising potential solutions based on facts, evidence, and principles of justice. Lori, it's a pleasure to see you again, even if virtually. Welcome to the show. Well, John, thank you so much. And it's a real pleasure being with you today, even under these circumstances. Well, thank you. Well, let's get right into it, shall we? Um, Lori, the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and others have obviously ignited a wave of protest and discontent throughout the nation. The awful video footage of Floyd in particular at the hands of Minneapolis police struck a nerve and has once again sparked the same kind of heated national conversations about police brutality and equal justice in the eyes of the law that we saw following Ferguson. Could you have ever imagined six years ago that we'd still be stuck right now at this exact same spot on this very issue? You know, John, when President Obama asked my co-chair Chuck Ramsey, who was then the police commissioner in Philadelphia, and me back in December of 2014 to co-chair a task force on policing. This was in the aftermath of Ferguson, as you said. We could never have imagined that these issues would still be so front and center as they are today. But one thing that is so clear in the aftermath now of of Minneapolis and the tragedy there is that the public is so centrally focused now on these issues. And one point that I do want to make is that things really have changed following Ferguson because police agencies and police leaders in particular really did have a wake-up call after Ferguson. We've seen changes in police agencies across the country in those six years, but clearly it's not been enough and more change clearly is needed. Now, you've dedicated so much of your life to this issue. Has it been frustrating for you to watch these events continue to unfold? Yes, it has been very much of concern, very upsetting. But what's heartening now, as we've looked at the protests over these recent weeks, is to see that this is not just a small number of people who are upset about this. We now are seeing polls that say 93% of the public, 93% are wanting police reform. I don't know that 93% of the public is interested (laughs) in anything anymore together. Maybe some very popular television show or something. But 93% of the public wanting and behind police reform is a substantial thing. And to see the protests that were multi-generational, that were multi-racial, that were multi-ethnic, and multi-class. And I think that was very significant, and that these demonstrations are continuing. So I think public officials 
legislators and others are listening and watching that. And that will, I think, lead to pressure for change. I think it's significant that a major corporate group, the Business Roundtable, has come out and said that they are pushing for police reform legislation. Now, I've, in my long years working on, around Capitol Hill and working on criminal justice issues, I've not seen a group like that engage on issues that were not kind of more self-interested. And so these are some significant pointers that make me feel heartened about the potential for change here. Now, the White House task force that you co-chair, Lori, made 59 recommendations, ranging from things that could have easily been implemented, like codifying the use of force policies, collecting data on police shootings, and even bigger picture changes, such as diversifying police forces and shifting away from the current warrior mindset that you so often see. How have those recommendations been received overall in the six years since Ferguson? Well, that's a very good question to ask. I think on the biggest picture, after they were issued, it was very good that the major police associations like the International Association of Chiefs of Police and Major City Chiefs Association and others really embraced the report, sent it out to their members, and encouraged its implementation. It's interesting because having been someone who grew up in Washington, was around Capitol Hill and the Washington scene over the course of my career, I've seen, as you probably have, hundreds of different reports come out from commissions and task forces over time. And the reality is most of those fade from memory after a few months. You don't even recall them a year later. Uh, this report has had amazing staying power in the field. Six years later, or five and a half at this point for the task force report, it has had tremendous penetration in the policing field. It would be hard to find a police chief in this country who's not familiar with the report, and so many of them use it as an actual checklist as to how they are running their department. I've heard from many chiefs that they actually use it as a guide when they're interviewing people for their supervisory functions or for hiring. So that's important. We know from a Vera Institute of Justice study that 34 states and DC in the two years after Ferguson adopted police reform legislation. So that was significant. And these were bills relating to things like use of force, like racial bias, like procedural justice training and implicit bias training. So significant areas. And 27 states passed legislation requiring mandating crisis intervention training for police on how to handle people with mental illness. So there have been definite steps forward. But again, clearly more needs to be done. Lori, why do you think even more changes still have yet to be embraced across the nation? Yeah, well, I would point to two factors. One of them is our very, very decentralized system of policing in this country, and that really relates to federalism. We have, as you probably know, 18,000 state and local law enforcement agencies in this country. And by the way, half of those agencies 9,000 of them have 10 or fewer sworn officers. So that's a, a huge number that are really tiny, tiny departments. And I often contrast this when I'm speaking with the very centralized system in European countries. In England and Wales, for example, 
together, they have only 35 police agencies. So if you were the home secretary in England, in the UK, and you had adopted a report with 59 recommendations, you could simply say to Scotland Yard, send this out to the 35 agencies, tell them to change their policies, change their processes, and change their training curriculum. While it would not address the kind of things around culture at the rank and file level, that would still take some time, it would be a huge head start down the way to effecting change. So that's one factor. The second factor is about culture. There's no question but that while I had talked about police leaders really being interested in the task force report and so many of them interested in change, at the rank and file level, uh, and this is true for many of the unions uh, as well, there has been resistance, which is certainly not unlike what we have seen in other institutional settings, whether in education or medicine or other areas. It's true for human beings, I think that change is many times hard to effect when there have been long-standing ways of doing business and there are attempts to uh, bring change about. You know, I, I guess my question is some of the things that critics are asking for, such as the banning of potentially lethal chokeholds, yeah. seem not only an easy ask, but just the right thing to do. So why so much institutional resistance from the police, but particularly from their unions? Well, I have not actually heard too many people openly opposing a formal change in those areas at this point after Minneapolis. But I do think there's very much, as you're pointing to, a kind of circling of the wagons with many, many people, as we've seen in law enforcement, particularly in the union and the kind of rank and file side, being on the defensive around issues of officer safety and, and fear, fear about of whether individual officers on the street are going to be put at risk. I think a lot of this over time is going to have to be addressed through better training and through hiring practices. And supervision is going to be part of this as well. So a panoply of different issues need to be addressed here, as well as union issues. One possible remedy is obviously been tossed about is diversifying police departments. How much would that help? And is that even realistic in some of the smaller, more rural areas? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. Research has shown that diversifying per se does not necessarily solve the problem. However, our task force did call for having departments that are racially, ethnically, and culturally representative of the communities that they serve. So uh, just as an example, my parents were both from rural North Dakota, from very small towns. In those communities, it would not be realistic to be hiring, let's say, African-Americans, because there simply were none in those counties. However, it probably would be realistic if they were creative and spent time on it to look for hiring Native Americans or even potentially Hispanics from some of the towns that had meatpacking plants now, not in the old days. So that's the kind of planning or creativity that should be utilized in thinking not narrowly, but broadly. And the reason that we did think that this was important was to be able to have a police force that could be reflective of the community, that it's stronger, and where the community also feels 
that the department is representative, not just that it's a symbol, but that they feel comfortable with the people who are their protectors. You touched on earlier about the decentralization and the systemic challenges that that poses. How difficult will it be to affect change short of completely tearing up the system and starting all over again? Well, as I said, you, you really are putting your finger on a very central barrier here to implementing change. And, you know, as an example, with the federal legislation that's now pending, a lot of which is very good, but you, you've seen that the drafters are now kind of twisting and turning to figure out from the federal level how they can have an impact with federal leverage on local police departments. And they're using the lever of federal grant funding. I had the privilege of heading the federal grants agency in the Justice Department for 10 years, and I've seen how that is a very imperfect lever. We've actually seen this in the sanctuary cities fight that's gone through multiple courts now in the country. So that can work at times with larger departments, but with half of the 18,000 that are very tiny agencies, most of them don't receive in fact, very few of them receive direct federal grants. So they're kind of outside the ambit of any direct control. In fact, I had kind of a debate with President Obama during the task force work. He was very interested in getting direct reports from all of the police agencies about reporting their use of force data. And he really leaned on me because he knew I'd headed the grants agency. Lori, why can't we get these direct reports from them? Why can't we require this with conditioning the grants? I don't get nervous very much. You know, when the leader of the free world is cross-examining you, so I swallowed hard and I said, uh, Mr. President, they're not getting grants. So he finally, oh, okay, okay. But it is an imperfect lever to do it that way. So our recommendations from the task force were directed almost overwhelmingly to police chiefs and encouraged at the state level. So I think that one thing that's been encouraging is to see that in the aftermath of the tragedy in Minneapolis, that a number of state legislatures are in fact really gearing up for action because the states have tremendous responsibility for local departments, for certification, for funding, and for their ability to set policy on everything from use of force to things like chokehold, et cetera. So I think that's an encouraging development and where we are likely to see a lot of uh, action and activity in the coming months. How much has increased militarization of police departments hurt their ability to build trust in the communities they're supposed to serve? And is trust even possible when you respond to incidents looking like an occupying army? Uh, well, I think you bring up, John, a very good point. And in the post 9-11 era, there definitely was a push primarily by the Department of Homeland Security, by DHS, to get a lot of that kind of equipment out to state and local law enforcement. Uh, I remember some departments telling us, telling me that they had a lot of this stuff almost pushed out to them when they were not so interested in it. In some cases, and Chuck Ramsey, among others, has told me how critical some equipment has been to their dealing with things like hostage situations or dealing with violent drug gangs. So there are certainly times when police departments need some of that equipment. But the important thing is 
that there are careful guidelines about its use and when it should not be used. And I think Exhibit A and when it is misused was in the aftermath of Ferguson, in Ferguson and televised for not only the country, but the world to see. One of the central principles in our report, as you alluded to, was the whole notion of the guardian concept. And that was an Exhibit A, again, of warriors and occupiers of the community. So I think this whole notion of the militarization is really a problem. One note here, the, the Pentagon's program of giving equipment out, it's called the 1033 program from the statute. Interestingly, a study just came out in the last few weeks from the National Police Foundation, which is a research group. And it found that in the last two years that the most requested items under that program have in fact not been any of the military equipment. They've been things like cold weather jackets, combat boots, cargo trucks, generators, and socket wrenches. So that's very interesting because nothing on the list, the whole list of the 50 states involved tanks or heavy duty armor or weapons. So in these cases, the program has actually provided a lot of good savings to local government and state government out of surplus equipment from the Pentagon. I saw that a bill was just introduced in Congress, a bipartisan bill, to limit the kind of things that police departments can get under the 1033 program. So that is the kind of thing that would make a lot of sense. Let them get the cold weather jackets right. and not get the tanks. Some of it just seems like common sense sense because it's just bad optics, if nothing else. Oh my gosh, yes. So all of that could be helpful back to your question on restoring trust that sure. had been lost. Well, Lori, what do you hear from the police? What do they say when they're asked to defend how their tactics are used? Well, the police leaders, either current or former chiefs and leaders with whom I have been speaking, are all generally supportive, very supportive of the reform measures dismayed about what happened in Minneapolis and Atlanta. But they also are, not surprisingly, pretty uh, streetwise and pragmatic. And they certainly are concerned about discussions about simply abolishing police departments. And I emphasize former chiefs here as well, because these are not people who are worried about their jobs, but they are concerned about being realistic about how a, a jurisdiction deals with incidents that are violent, incidents of sexual assault, of frequently very dangerous domestic violence incidents where children are involved or a spouse, either male or female, has been hurt badly. Officers are often injured in those incidents. And by officers, I mean whoever is responding to those situations can be at risk. And uh, certainly gun violence issues. And so how community would be dealing with this without a police department is uh, somewhat unclear. So I think that is one reaction. And then from the standpoint of more rank and file, I think, as I mentioned before, there's a defensiveness at this point, a defensiveness about uh, part of it based on fear, a part of it a sense that there's a lack of understanding of the challenges that officers on the street are facing. And yet at the same time, no one who I have heard or talked to who has defended the action taken by the officer in Minneapolis in connection with George Floyd's death 
no one who I have heard who has defended him. I want to ask you also, Lori, about your thoughts on community policing. I ask because we have a colleague who lives in, in D.C. and lives near a street corner, but there was recently a double murder. It's a crime hotspot. A cop is stationed on the corner now, but he never gets out of his car. And one of the biggest complaints to the people in his community is that they wish the police officer would get out of the car and interact with them. Would something as simple as more uh, community policing be effective as well? Well, first of all, uh, he certainly should be getting out of his car. <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of a no-brainer. But community policing has to be more than just walking the street and saying hi to the residents. When we talked about community policing in the task force report, our recommendation was something that is a firm, not just engagement, but partnership with the community. We talked about co-producing public safety with the community. And by that, what we meant by co-production was that the police agency, the police department, needs to actually engage with the community through partnerships with schools, with churches, with community groups of all kinds, not just a kind of self-selected community group, with all sorts of people in the community to listen to them and talk with them about what are the public safety problems and challenges, and then talk with them and engage with them and sort out how are we going to deal with them? You know, this is hard. This is not an easy thing. This is not one hour meeting every month. This is really about an ongoing dialogue and engagement. And I really believe that if this kind of thing had been followed in New York 10 years, 15 years ago, that the whole stop and frisk problem would not have arisen. I won't delve into who was commissioner then, but if he had pursued real engagement with the community, the stop and frisk problems would not have occurred because talking to the community about what he was trying to achieve and hearing the concerns, even if he had started it and, it and then had stopped to listen, this would have been very different and he would not have ended up before a federal judge. Now, eventually all the protests across America streets will subside, but how optimistic are you, Lori, that real changes in police reform will follow this time? Well, I've often said, John, that you, you have to be an optimist to work in criminal justice. <laughs> and I am an optimist. And for the reason that I cited before about this high level of public support for change and the fact that there are a broad number of allies like the corporate community, I do think that we will see change. We may not see change immediately on the federal level just because of Congress's getting tied up in its usual partisan knots. But the fact that, as I mentioned, that four states already have passed legislation on police reform, and I think more than a dozen others are considering it, a number of local jurisdictions have already passed measures as well. Agencies themselves are updating their policies. A lot of pressure to do that. But there's still a ton of work to be done. Looking at other related issues, we ask police to handle so many issues related to poverty, mental health, domestic situations, in addition to everything else they're charged with. Do we ask the police to do too much? And where do you think the lines need to be drawn? Well, I think you're absolutely right. We do ask police to do too much. I think part of this has been, or maybe a large part of it has been, that with cutbacks in government, probably going back to the 80s, we have gradually defunded a variety of things. I think about mental health services, when with the shutting down of the mental health hospitals, the idea was for community mental health centers 
but they never really were funded. And of course, as we know, that led to a lot of the homeless on the streets. And similarly, that there has been a lack of adequate funding in areas like community-based uh, addiction centers and for social workers and the like. All of the, or not all, but a great bulk of those responsibilities end up in the laps of the police. I've never met a law enforcement person who said, gee, we love, we'd like more of that business. Most of them would like to turn it over tomorrow, if not this afternoon. The hard question, of course, is where do you draw the lines and how do you make those shifts? Part of it certainly is about money. And it's easy to say, well, we'll cut the police budget and just shift the money over. But some of it is a little harder to do because the cases themselves are not so easy to identify exactly how to parse that out. For example, if there's a call to a call center at two in the morning about an individual who is on a street, and there may be a lot of other people around because it might be an area where there are, there's some nightlife and the individual looks like he might have been drinking or maybe having uh, used drugs or something and he's kind of acting out, and people are a little concerned about his actions. Do they send a, a mental health therapist? Do they send a police officer? Uh, do they send both? So to have the protocols spelled out, would there be, if it's two in the morning, is there a therapist or a social worker on duty at that time right now? There probably isn't because those do not tend to be 24-hour jobs in many jurisdictions. So those are the kinds of things that need to be sorted out. As you can imagine, a lot of activists had their doubts about real police reform coming. And they begun calling about defunding or even abolition of police departments, as you mentioned. How wise is this? And is it even realistic even suggest these kinds of things? Yeah, well, those are uh, really good questions, but I do think that the defunding issue raises an important set of questions that are good ones. I think we should be asking, what's the appropriate role of the criminal law in our society and of the arrest function? What behaviors do we want to be criminalizing? What do we want to be using the arrest function for? So those are really good questions for us collectively to be asking. Again, the Vera Institute did a study a few years back, and they found that there are more than 10 million arrests every year in the United States, but fewer than 5% of them are for serious violent crime. And a whole lot of the more minor arrests really fall on people of color and poor people. So we really need to think about how we lessen that burden on people for what are perhaps unnecessary arrests. I think that's really the question we should be asking. And on your broader question, I don't think it makes sense to completely defund police departments. But I think looking at questions of what ancillary services in the areas we just discussed relating to handling the mentally ill, those who are addicted, and those who have mental illness is, is a good set of conversations and discussions to be having. As you look back, was there any issue that you wished the White House Task Force had been able to address if you had been given more time? Well, actually, uh, President Obama, as we were wrapping up the work, did ask Chuck Ramsey, my co-chair, and me that question. And we told him, and I still think this is true today, that that one area was recruitment and hiring. As we think about the challenges of 21st century policing, 
And I think this is really highlighted by these recent incidents. People coming into policing now are going to be those who really shape our relationship between policing and communities for the 21st century and shape how this guardian culture, guardian mindset will succeed or not. And we need to be hiring for that guardian mindset. I think that's gonna be critical. We also want to be hiring a diverse workforce, a diverse in terms of ethnicity and racial characteristic and cultural. And by the way, also for gender. Women make up only 13% of the workforce in law enforcement in this country. And that percentage, by the way, has been steady for two decades. Women, according to research, much less likely to use force and much better at using social interaction skills, which are good at lowering temperatures and diffusing situations. That doesn't surprise you, does it, John? No, not, not really. <laughs> So really focusing on who we're bringing into policing is a really critical, critical issue. So Lori, what's the end point? How do we strike a balance between needing police to keep communities safe while also ensuring that the police treat everybody fairly and with respect? Well, that, of course, is the $10 million question <laughs> or whatever high figure we can name. I think that public engagement is really critical here and that the fact the public right now is so focused on these issues is really central here to whether we can really affect the change that's needed. I do worry some that public interest is fickle and will it just move on to some other issue in the coming months. But to the extent that it can be sustained, I think we really will bring a needed change here and ensure that there's a spotlight on the need for the kind of fair treatment and continued focus on that and accountability, which is the important word. Well, that's certainly a lot for us all to think about, but uh, that's going to wrap things up for us here at Access to Excellence. We want to thank the esteemed Lori Robinson for her time and her valuable insights. I'm John Hollis. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.